man, are you hungry. Like, two in the afternoon and skip breakfast today like a fool, hungry. You begin a frenzied search around the house for something to eat. You've emptied the cupboards, pried all the cabinets, even investigated the fridge, but there just isn't a single morsel for you to munch on. <laughs> Not defeated just yet, you become even more exploratory as your hunger drives you to check under the couch, for example, or even out in the yard. A little strange, but desperate times call for desperate measures. As a last resort, you grab your keys and trudge all the way out yonder to the supermarket. Your lack of options at home caused you to expend loads of energy to continue your search elsewhere, out and about in your neighborhood. Did you know butterfly fish do the exact same thing? This week on Wild and Wonderful World with Shayna Grace, we're swimming right into the realm of fish personalities. What secret lives do little fishies live in the ocean? How might things like hunger or climate change affect their behavior or personalities? Do fish really even have personalities? We'll dive into these topics and ask animal behaviorist Rachel Gunn on today's episode. I'm Shana Grace, and this is the Wild and Wonderful World podcast. Don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Wild Wonderful World Podcast. I look forward to talking to you on social media. Anyone who spends a lot of time around fish can tell you that some fish are a little bit meaner than others. I was snorkeling in the shallow, algae-covered shores of the Galapagos Islands. Galapagos sea lions and marine iguanas played and ate in the cool, nutrient-rich water. But today, it wasn't their behavior I was interested in. Instead, I was looking for some fishy farmland of sorts, the algae plots of a special species of damselfish. Schools of parrotfish, surgeonfish, and other marine critters paid me no mind, peacefully swimming by. Then, I felt a little nip on my fin. I turned around to witness a damselfish, no bigger than my hand, taking me head on to defend its algal territory. Surely, I thought, this fish can't be serious. A few bites to the fins and legs later, and I clearly got the message. This fish had every intention of fighting me off its territory. Damselfish are notoriously a little bit mean. But what does that mean in the grander scheme of their place in the ecosystem? What does it mean if a fish is too passive or shy, or even a little bit bold by nature? Scientists study the personality of fish by looking at repeated behaviors in response to certain stimuli or scenarios. If an individual animal consistently responds a certain way, and there are differences between individuals, then personality is said to drive those differences. Lemon sharks, a species of shark that can grow up to 11 feet and lives in the Bahamas, are helping us learn more about animal personality. Through research at the Bimini Shark Lab, scientists are discovering the shark's unique personalities and how it relates to their environment as juveniles. You see, as babies, lemon sharks like to stay in a mangrove nursery for about three years. 
they have fairly defined home ranges that don't extend into perilous deeper water. Some babies, however, are more adventurous than others and occasionally leave the safety of the nursery to peruse those dangerous depths. Scientists were curious if these sharks experience a sort of wanderlust and if this boldness was consistent as they grew up. How would this relate to everyday decisions, some of life or death, for growing sharks? While the results are still preliminary, scientists at Bimini are fairly confident that shark personalities are apparent, consistent, and affect their daily lives as they grow. It's not just the big sharks that exhibit personality differences. Little fish as small as guppies have individual personalities as well. When guppies were placed in a stressful situation, scientists from the University of Exeter found that their individual responses were different and even consistent across multiple tests. Guppies had multiple strategies for coping with the new stress, such as trying to hide, escape, or explore cautiously. Rainbow trout, studied by scientists in Britain, even displayed differences in personality based on social contexts. For example, if a bold fish lost in a fight to another fish, it would become more shy. If a shy fish won, it would gain confidence and become more bold. Fish personality might just play a role in social behavior, way more than we originally thought. How might the availability of food and the loss of good habitat due to pollution or climate change affect fish personality? Scientists absolutely think that pollution will play a role in affecting animal behavior and personality in the future, potentially even altering the evolution of certain fish species. But there's so many questions to be asked and research to be done. Our guest, Rachel Gunn, is helping answer these questions and changing how we think of fish personality in the wild. Yep, so hi, my name is Rachel. I'm a second year PhD student at Lancaster University. I'm doing a PhD in marine ecology, um, but what I'm specifically interested in is the animal behaviour side of things. So how are individuals behaving in response to climate change and what does that mean for their persistence in the future? So my first question for you today, Rachel, is um, why do we care about fish on coral reefs? So there's kind of lots of different levels as to why we should care about fish from in terms of humans. So humans eat fish, so fish are a food source. Um, and whilst not all of those fish will come directly from coral reefs, um, as juveniles, those fish will probably settle on coral reef areas before until they grow and then they'll move out into open water. So your big fishery fish may well spend some time on coral reefs. Local small communities in really remote areas of the world, they rely on coral reef fish often to survive as one of their only limited food sources. Um, from, say, a tourism angle, the coral reef fish are really pretty and there's lots of different colours. And if you have a really nice, healthy reef, you've got lots of nice fish that people are going to want to look at. 
Um, but in terms of the ecology side, reef fish are really important to biodiversity. Coral reefs in particular are massively diverse ecosystems and you get all kinds of different fish, all shapes and sizes, everything down from your tiny little gobies that live in the sand all the way up to your big predatory fish and your sharks. So talking about coral reef fish, what kind of fish do you study and what makes them special? So I work with a group of fish called butterfly fish. So these are really uh, quite small reef fish, maybe up to sort of 20, 30 centimeters. Um, and they're really, really colorful. Um, and they have a really diverse diets, but a big group of the um, butterfly fish fall into a category that we call coralivores. So that means that they feed directly on live coral on the reefs. Um, some of these coralivores, they'll be really um, specialized, so they might literally only feed off one species of coral. Others are more broad, so they will only eat coral, but they might eat lots of different species. And some will eat coral, but they'll eat lots of other things as well. Um, so they're quite unique in that sense, like their diet makes them really interesting to study, particularly when we're looking at climate change and coral bleaching. Um, but they're a really good model organism for research as well, um, partly because they're quite easy to study. So they aren't really freaked out by the presence of people, so they're not very jumpy, so you can get quite close to them and observe their behaviour. They're really diverse and they're abundant on a lot of coral reefs as well. Um, and something that makes them really interesting is a lot of butterfly fish have what we call an eye spot. So it's usually a black spot somewhere on the body and that kind of makes them a little bit like a butterfly if you think of the spots on the wings of a butterfly. And this is a form of predatory defense. So that spot looks like a really big eye. So a predatory fish will look at that and think that the fish is way bigger than it actually is and not want to try and attack it. And they're also really thin. So they're kind of like a flat if you look at them side like dead on, it's really hard to see them because they're really flat. I can't quite remember if it's laterally or whatever the, the shape is called. Um, but again, that's predator defense um, because if a predatory fish looks at them dead on, they're going to think, well, that's not worth eating. So I'm going to try and go for something else. So they're a really cool, interesting group of fish. Well, yeah, they sound really cool. I, um, I remember seeing some butterfly fish when we were snorkeling and stuff in Indonesia yeah. and I was being really fascinated by them. Speaking of which, where do you conduct most of your field work and what is the habitat like there? Yeah, so I do most of my research um, in Indonesia. So I work on a tiny island um, in southeast Sulawesi called Hoga. Um, and I've, I've only done one um, year of field work so far, but um, I have two sites there. So one is a high coral cover site um, and that's composed, um, it's a shallow site, it's um, quite um, diverse in terms of its benthic coverage. So there is a high amount of coral, so between 30 and 40% coral cover. And um, there's also quite a lot of soft coral as well, which makes it really interesting to look at visually. There's loads of different shapes and colours. Um, and it's a, a flat reef and it's also got a, a crest and a slope. So you've got three different reef habitats there as well. Um, and that's kind of what we would call a pristine site. So nice and healthy, diverse, lots of different fish coming through. And then I have a low coral cover site. So this um, site is really close to a local fishing village. So a bagshell community uh, called Sampella. Um, so it's really close to where they live. So you get a lot of nutrient runoff onto that reef. 
it's also quite damaged by blast fishing as well so fishermen will um, illegally literally drop dynamite on the reef that blows up and they take whatever comes to the surface um, so that obviously is really bad for the coral so the coral cover is a lot lower at San Pelo around 20 percent um, and that reef is completely different so it's quite patchy uh, in part because of this blast, blast fishing. So you get areas that have just been decimated and it's all kind of just slopes of rubble. But then you get the odd bit here and there that's kind of what we call a coral bommy. So a small area like of rock and coral and they're like more pristine for want of a better word. But that was what I use as my degraded site. So I have um, two different sites and we can make comparisons between the behavior of fish on those two sites and try and relate those differences to coral loss. You mentioned at these two sites studying fish behavior. So do individual fish have different individual personalities? And is studying individual personalities of animals kind of a newish field? Yeah, so I think it's important to define a few things here. So personality is obviously something that's usually referred to um, in terms of people, person, people. Um, but what it means from a behavior, animal behavior point of view is uh, it refers to consistent individual differences. So if you have 10 fish, um, you might have, um, if you measure the aggression of those 10 fish, some fish might always be more aggressive than other fish. Um, and those fish that are really aggressive, they might also be really bold as well. Um, so if you correlate the boldness and aggression and they're correlated with one another, then that will be um, what we call a personality. So it's something that it's repeatable across different contexts. So if an individual is aggressive when they're looking for food, they might also be aggressive when they're looking for a mate, for example. So it's a repeatable behavior across different contexts. And it's really interesting because a lot of the time with environmental change um, and animal behavior, what we're looking at is behavioral plasticity. And that refers to how an individual can actually change its behavior. So um, if you put an individual in a really high area of coral, it might behave really aggressively. If you put it in an area of low coral cover, if it can show behavioral plasticity, it might lower its aggression. If actually that aggression is related to a personality, then it would behave aggressively across different scenarios. So it's really interesting because then we can start to look at what's driving behavioral responses. Um, if it's behavioral plasticity, then we expect to see changes um, in behavior as we manipulate an environment. If it's personality, we expect to see that behavior to be consistent. And then we can start to ask questions about how behaviors are evolving. Um, because if, if, you, if a personality evolves, and it could be that as time goes on and environments change, if an animal can't change its level of aggression, it could start behaving maladaptively. Um, if we look at butterfly fish, for example, in a really nice area um, with higher coral cover, they will defend a territory and they will defend that territory aggressively because that territory will have a high quality food source in it. So it makes sense to invest energy in being aggressive. If you take some of that coral away over time, the, it's not going to be worth maintaining a high level of aggression because they don't have the food to keep up with that energy demand. But if aggression is more of an inherent personality trait, that could cause some issues for that fish in the future. So what, what, what I'm trying to work out is what's going on there. 
uh, the individuals that we're seeing at the low, uh, low coral cover site, are they individuals that have always been there from back when it was a really nice site and they've managed to adapt their behaviour? Or is it actually that oh, the individuals that are there now are only there because they're the ones that either have the personality traits that allow them to persist in a harsh environment or is it because they can show more behavioural plasticity? So the idea of looking at personality is actually just really looking at individual differences in behaviour. And individual differences isn't a new concept. It's been around for, well, years. Um, personality as a word is relatively new to the animal behaviour um, world, but the ideas behind it, so individual differences in behaviour, aren't that new. Um, but there's, it's a kind of a growing field at the moment because, of course, a lot of research is now focusing on environmental change because that's a huge thing that's happening in our world at the moment. And there's research coming out that's showing that actually if we can understand what individuals are doing, that could be more informative to working out what's going on in the future. And we can make predictions as to what um it, what animals are able to persist in the future, what individuals we might expect to see. So we're going to see a lot more aggressive individuals <clears throat> or more passive individuals. So it's a really interesting area of research. Um, that is, I wouldn't necessarily say it's new, but I would say that it's gaining an evolve, rapidly evolving field. Like there's a growing interest in it. Awesome. That is so important um, to be able to first of all, study individuals and um, study their behavior, study personality, but then uh, relate that to climate change is just really cool. A lot of people, I think, have the impression that you have to study um, large-scale mechanisms and ecology and things like that uh, to make predictions, but we are finding that you're right. The individual behavior is also super important. Um, so that's really neat. So why, um, I guess we kind of already touched on this, um, but other, other than climate change, why study the individual behavior or personalities of fish? So looking at individual behavior can help explain some of the variation that we might see in a data set. So a lot of the time, animal behavior research um, will say, look at 50 individuals and then they'll calculate a mean value. So you get one value for those 50 individuals, which can have really, right, really useful implications. Don't get me wrong, that's like a lot of research focuses on that and for good reason. But if we can look at those individuals separately, that can kind of inform us as to what's going on and kind of go this to a, a, a more zoomed in level, if you like. So if we have a mean value, but actually there are individuals on a huge distribution around that mean, then that can be really interesting. So, for example, the frequencies of different behaviours can be really interesting. If we have a population um, and we've got an average level of aggression, that can be informative for, say, getting broad behavioural differences. But if we can look at those individuals separately, we might be able to see that 70% are actually really aggressive and 30% are less aggressive. And those frequencies are really important. So the idea of um, mathematical game theory comes in here, which is a little bit complicated, um, but it works around the idea, so it's a hawk and dove game, 
and it's if two individuals meet uh, in this theoretical game you can either be a hawk and you always attack or you can be a dove and you retreat and the frequencies there are really important because if you start playing that game hypothetically over generations you'll eventually get a stable number of hawks and doves and if you change the environment over time that frequency could change and so it's really it's really informative um, to identifying what's going to happen over time and what also is going on at a more zoomed in level than just looking at a more broad behavioral um, change. Yeah game theory is something that I personally don't have a lot of experience with but it is super cool to see it applied to real life like ecological systems is that pretty common in animal behavior to apply game theory uh, relatively so yeah i mean um it comes obviously from it's a mathematical concept but then it was applied to aggression um and then you've also you've got different games that can be applied to an ecological um concepts but it's, it is really interesting but it's one of those things it's also very complicated so I kind of go through waves of oh, if I'm doing a lot of work around that and reading then I really understand it but if I take a week away and do something else it takes me a while to get back into it but there are really useful applications of game theory to animal behavior. <laughs> is there anything else you want to touch on about how reefs and reef fish are going to be affected by climate change and how that relates to your research? So the, I look at butterfly fish and I look at coral cover. So my main um, axis of environmental change is coral loss. And that happens for various reasons. Coral bleaching being um, one of the main ones. So sea surface temperatures rising cause the corals to bleach. Um, and so they are no longer a valid food source to butterfly fish. But it will affect different fish to different levels depending on various different factors. So for butterfly fish, like I said before, you have what we call obligate coralivores, so they have to feed on live coral. So if coral is declining, that's going to directly affect those, the diet of those fish. So they're either going to have to adapt and modify their diet or they're going to eventually die out. But many, also I mentioned before about um, how if you have a high food source, you have more energy to be aggressive and defend that and defend your territory. So we see changes in both aggression and exploration with territory size as well. So in a really nice coral reef, you have territories that are really small because there's a lot of coral, so they don't need to have big territories. So individuals don't move around very much, they feed a lot and they're quite aggressive. Um, but if you lose that coral, individuals are going to have to either modify their behaviour, so expand their territories and explore more for what little food's available and invest more in exploring than aggression, um, or again, they're going to die out. If you move away from coralivores and you look at other organisms, coral as a structure provides a lot of hiding places. Um, and the more complex a reef is, the more niches you have for different things to live in. And if that goes, you're losing a lot of habitat as well for different organisms. They provide a lot of protection as well. So a lot of juveniles will live inside big areas of coral and hide and be safe. So you lose that as well. That will disappear if you lose coral. And 
as well so if you cut herbivores so if you lose coral what's going to happen is algae is going to come in and take over the reef because coral is really really slow growing and takes years and years to establish algae is really fast growing so if it sees a chance and the coral is dying out then algae is going to come in and take over so then you'll get an influx of herbivory on the reefs um, and what you'll find is you'll lose some diversity as well because you've lost the complexity of the reef so there's loads of different things that are going on and it's it's not a sim- it's not a simple picture so it's really interesting um all of the different fish and all of the different ways that they could be affected by climate change well yeah that is definitely depressing to think about um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just the absolute incredibly important nature of coral reefs and the fact that we are losing them yeah definitely not a good situation but why study fish in the wild instead of in a lab so both lab work and field work are both really important and they both have their merits so if you're working in a lab you have control over everything which is really nice so you don't have any confounding factors and you can get really really useful data and information about the behavior of individuals and the behavior of populations if you're in the field you get a more natural idea of what's going on because looking at behavior the way something behaves could well be impacted by its environment so it can be quite hard to gauge kind of the natural and um, looking at naturally what's going on in a lab because obviously it's not the same as their natural habitat. So whilst you get really stringent, good quality data in lab work that is really, really important, you can you can still get high quality data in the field, but it's, it, it's harder to do, it's a lot harder to do. So a lot of fish research has been done in the lab. There is obviously a lot of field work in animal behavior, a lot of bird studies are done in the field. It's really easy to tag birds really hard to tag tiny little fish that don't have any fins that stick out um, so that's one of the reasons why there is a focus on lab work but if we're looking at individual behavior a lot of that is related directly to the environment that they're in and um, so it's really important to study them in that environment because you might not get the same results in a lab so one of the things that I did for the first chapter in my PhD is kind of compare all the work that's been done on environmental change and five different forms of behavior and comparing kind of everything. So lab, field, uh, the types of organisms, the way that they've been measured. And you do see a little bit of a difference between the lab and the field. And that is probably because although they might be, although a field study and a lab study might be studying the same thing, the conditions are going to be very, very different. So you can, you can, try and match the conditions of the field in the lab but there's going to be some natural variations in the field that can't stimulate in the lab and it could be that those natural variations are actually having an effect on behavior so if you have kind of tiny little micro niches so tiny little differences in the environment that could actually be enough to uh, influence the behavior of an individual so that's why i study in situ we call it fish in the field because I think it's important to keep those natural fluctuations there because they could be having an effect and whilst you can get really kind of zoomed in ideas of what one how one factor affects behavior or how a couple of factors affect behavior in the lab it's nice I enjoy um, working in the field because I think it's more natural and I think 
it's a lot harder don't get me wrong it's, it's a lot harder to work in the field but i think it gives a more natural idea of the behaviors that are going on i feel like every every scientist or every marine biologist especially always has to make that decision of you know am i gonna try and study this in the field is that even realistically a possibility or am i going to study this in the lab and there are definitely trade-offs between definitely. those two options i'm kind of in the almost opposite scenario but it's actually a lot harder for me to do my research in the lab because i look at but i look at obligate corallivores and live coral and um, it's really hard to keep coral alive in a lab oh absolutely um, then look at a, corallivore fish behavior to it so it's actually it is really hard to do that so that is another reason why I work in the field. <laughs> so we're talking about butterfly fish which are quite small compared to like fish that are typically tagged I guess so how did you distinguish your individual fish while you were doing your field work? So because the species I look at, so I use, I'm using one species at the moment um, called Chaiston lunulatus, which I think the common name is the oval butterfly fish. Don't quote me on that, I think it is. Um, so they're an obligate corallivore, so they have to eat coral to survive. And they also have a really strong pair bond, so they mate for life, they have monogamous pairs, and they hold territories. So if you put all of that together, what you've got is you've got pairs of fish along a reef that stay in the same place for their entire lives usually um, and there's only going to be two of them so what I did when I did my field work last year is I went along the reef and I marked the territories then I mapped those territories so I knew exactly where the fish would be and that's where you can go back to the same place and have with relatively good certainty that you're looking at the same fish that you did the other day that's obviously not the case for a lot of fish, but for me, that's where it's actually worked out really well because there's no real way that I could tag the fish, at least not within my budget. So it's really good way of saying, okay, we know these fish have really strong pair bonds. They mate for life and they hold territory. So we can go back to these locations over and over again and study the same fish. And that way we can get a really good idea of their individual behavior without having to come up with a weird way of tagging them or taking them and putting them in a lab. What is your favorite aspect about the research that you do? I, I love, I know we've spoken about field work a lot, but I love going out and working in the field. I really enjoy the process of coming up with an experiment to do in the field or observations to do in the field, planning that, actually going and doing it and then getting together the results and writing a paper. I really, I really like that process. And I love that I can do every stage of that process. And I am fortunate to be able to do that with my PhD. Um, I work with Operation Wallacea. They um, help with my field work. Um, so I use their sites for my field work and they help me with all the permitting and the funding. So I am in a very fortunate position that I can do that. But I love the field work, not just for the research itself, but also the places that I get to work. So Hoga, for example, is an incredible part of the world. Um, working there for two months a year, you get to know the local people, and you get to learn about the local cultures and the way of life. And to me, that's really important because I'm going into their world to collect a load of data and then I leave again. So for me, it's really important to get to know the people and understand their way of life as well. So I, I love that aspect. But yeah, so 
working in incredible parts of the world with incredible people and getting to see my research through from start to finish. What is the coolest thing you've learned so far conducting your research? So I think for me, so I've only got data for two chapters at the moment, uh, one of which is my field work. And we're still, I'm still kind of writing up the discussion side to what the results mean. But what we do see is across two sites, so a high and low coral cover site, there are really pronounced differences in behaviour. And it's really, really interesting to see, like the territory sizes are huge at the low coral cover site, and they're tiny at the high coral cover site. So it's, it's for me, it's been really cool to see the predictions come true, if you like. Um, it's yeah, the results that we've seen are exactly what I would expect to see, which is always really nice to get out of um, a research project. Yeah, so what we're seeing is um, individuals on a high coral cover site that are really, really aggressive and they they swim around a lot in the sense that they forage. So they, they spend most of their time moving between small patches of coral um, and they feed a lot. And when you move to a low coral cover site, what we see really clearly is the aggression decreases. They're a lot less aggressive. Their territory is a lot bigger, so they're swimming around more, searching for food rather than actually foraging within the corals. And another really interesting thing from kind of a feeding angle is that a high coral cover site, the time that individuals invested in foraging and feeding wasn't different. So they were looking for food and they were pretty much always finding it. But at the low coral cover site, there was a big difference between the foraging and the feeding. So individuals were spending loads of time foraging, but the actual amount of time spent feeding was actually really, really low, which suggests that they're looking for food. They're investing most of their time in looking for food, but they're not finding much. So yeah, it's been really nice to see results clear like that. What are you hoping to examine next for your PhD? So, so far what I've got is data from two different sites, so two different sets of individuals. So whilst that gives us an idea of what's going on within each of those two populations, what would be really cool to see would be how if you change an environment for one individual, what does that do to their behaviour? Does it stay the same, which would suggest these behaviours are inherent and related to kind of personality, or do they change as their flexibility? So I'm actually meant to be doing it right now. It should be a month into field work, but with everything going on in the world, I'm not. So this is now the plan for next year. But what I'm hoping to do is to use um, a really nice, um, relatively high coral cover site, monitor the individuals there for a couple of weeks, and then actually reduce the coral cover that they can access in those sites down to the level of coral that we see at the low coral cover site, so about 17%. So I'll put little mesh cages over the coral, so the coral won't be affected at all, but the butterfly fish just won't be able to access it to feed. And then I'll monitor their behaviour again for another few weeks under those conditions, and then we'll take it off again and give them access to the high coral cover and monitor it again. Because what's really important that if you do see a change in behavior, it's really important to know if that's then reversible again. So to kind of get that full picture. And um, so that's the plan. And that will be really interesting because that will answer all of the queries that have kind of come out of the first year field work. So it should be really nice to tie everything together. And then the last 
kind of bit of my PhD is going to be looking at the game theory stuff that we were talking about before. So looking at aggression in particular and when individuals of different species meet, what's the frequency of aggression before coral bleaching events and after coral bleaching events and kind of using that to predict what we're going to see in the future. So I just have one final question for you. If you had to give a a piece of advice to young marine biologists or those interested in field work and entering the field of marine biology, what would it be? I would say take every opportunity that comes your way. I, I, I would say that where I am today, I got there more because of the experiences I've had. So getting out in the field, doing voluntary things have probably been more important than actually having the degree itself. So I have an undergraduate degree in zoology and a master's in marine biology. But at the end of my second year of uni, I went out with Operation Wallacea and did an expedition in Honduras. I learned to dive and I did a little bit of reef ecology. I then, because I'd done a bit of diving, I was able to quite quickly get a professional level qualification, which means you can conduct research basically. Um, And then when I did my master's, because I had that experience, I was able to work in the Cayman Islands and do work on lionfish for my master's thesis. Um, And I also did some teaching over there as well. And just finding every opportunity, even like going overseas, it is expensive and it's it's not cheap, but there are also loads. It also depends what you're interested in. I'm a coral reef ecologist, so that there's no coral reefs in England where I am. Um, This isn't the tropics, so it involves travel for me. But there's obviously branches of of marine biology that don't require a lot of travel and it also depends where you live. But there are literally hundreds of small organisations out there that do surveying probably near where you live. And getting involved in that and having that survey or lab experience or whatever is definitely the way forward. So even if you don't think it's relevant to what you're interested in, there's definitely going to be skills there that someone's going to look at and go, that's really good, you've had that experience, you have the hands-on skills to progress um, so for me, I would say seize every opportunity. Um, if you're able to get out there, get in the field. If you um, aren't into travelling, but you're still interested in the marine side, get involved locally. There will be you'll be amazed at what's out there once you start to look. Um, but it's really important that you embrace the voluntary positions um, and have all of those experiences because that will really help you later on. That is such great advice, and I completely agree. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. It has been fantastic to get to talk to you, and I really enjoyed our interview today. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the second episode of the Wild and Wonderful World podcast. We've heard from expert Rachel Gunn today and learned loads of cool things about fish personality and behavior. Tune in next week for an exciting episode all about sponges with special guest Ramadian Bakhtiar. That's all for now. Until next week, this is Shayna Grace signing off. Mm-hmm.